Explore the depths of your curiosity with aerospace engineer John Connolly, Columbia Space Center's Benjamin Dickow, and CEO of Heavy Metal Magazine, Matthew Medney, as they bring scientists, engineers, and authors on a journey of discovery. This is Putting the Science in Science Fiction, where fiction and science collide. Welcome back, everyone. This is Putting the Science Science Fiction. My co-hosts, Ben Dickow and John Connolly, are here, and we have our special guest for the show today, Adam Frank, astrophysicist from, I believe, Rochester Institute? No, no, University of Rochester. Rochester Institute is the other college in the in Rochester, and we hate them! No, we don't. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I love you it. kind of hate them. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not really. I just, I love like arbitrary, you know, distinctions. When I lived in Minnesota, everybody hated Iowans. Like, it was like, why? It's like, well, I don't know. We got to hate somebody. So they're close. So no, I love RIT. It's all good. <laughs> my, my dad went to the University of Georgia. And when we were, when I was looking at colleges way back when, uh, I was not allowed to look at Georgia Tech, no matter what. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's good so to have I, completely arbitrary, meaningless reasons to like, you know, go to war over things. It's very human. <laughs> that that is what most wars are, right? But <laughs> yeah, it's but, true. Um, but That's a different topic. <laughs> that yeah. is, but not really. Some, you know, science fiction helps. You know, uh, we've always talked about on the show how science fiction, you know, is a, a great defender of what might happen if the wrong decisions are made. I always will come back to Star Trek and, you know, conflicts with the Romulans and conflicts with the yeah. Borg as, you know, things that that show what could happen if we don't uh, learn to be more copacetic, right? I, uh, I've been recently re-watching mm -hmm. all of Stargate uh, SG-1. Right. I'm working with, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm allowed to say who so I'm working with someone that worked on those shows on one of my uh, comics uh, to be adapted into TV shows. So I've been rewatching and half for fun, half to get a sense of his writing style and the the Gauld and how humanity just thought that they would have as much technology as them is like that hubris that uh, right. that I see a lot in in society today that I think is uh, interesting. But Adam, is there any you know, science fiction or fantasy stories that you think tell a uh, a tale of uh, warning or apprehension that 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 you you enjoyed watching. Well, warning. I mean, it's interesting because you know, there's science fiction can do two things, right? On the one hand, science fiction is really even if it's you know aliens, it's about us. It's always about us. On the other hand, I don't think, but I don't, you know, I, I think that's one of the roles of science fiction is to use these narratives about alternative futures or or other societies really just to reflect on humans but i also think it has the exact opposite it also actually allows you mm -hmm. to ask questions about alternatives and such so um i'll tell you right now my favorite mm -hmm. science fiction series both books and tv series i will argue that these it is the best science fiction uh in the last since Battlestar Galactica, you know, TV is the Expanse. Yes. I have nothing but yes, good things to yes. say about yeah, the Expanse. Yeah. Oh yeah, we are and avid so, you know, Expanse I, lovers on the show. It's amazing. I I stayed up and I just binged all three episodes. I was like, is it one? Yeah, again? I still have one left. <laughs> I have one left, and I'm I'm holding it off because I love it so much. I'm staying up till tomorrow morning and watching it again the next one. <laughs> <laughs> So that show, I think, serves a lot of interesting functions. And the books, too, because I was a huge fan of the books before the show. And when I was still doing the NPR blog, mm. 
when the first, when, you know, sci-fi announced that they were doing it, I wrote a whole column that said, do not screw this up or I'm coming after you. Right. You know, cause it's such a beloved <laughs> series. And the thing that's really amazing about that is what's most important about that is that it actually shows what the, what, uh, what, life in space will be right mm-hmm. you know we're full of science fiction shows that and you know mm-hmm. oh artificial gravity yeah it's artificial gravity. we don't know how we did it but we got it yeah or warp drives which mm-hmm. it's not even clear there is such a thing as the warp drive the uh, kubra drive you know who knows whereas mm-hmm. you know if what, what was beautiful about the expanse was that they were really taking the science seriously and more than anything the physics became a character in the show so you know when the when your rockets mm-hmm. are on you've got thrust gravity when you're spinning, you've got um, spin gravity. And there's consequences for all of them, right? So there's mm-hmm. a great – I'm not really sure which season it was, mm-hmm. but where, you know, they're in the middle of a battle and everybody's not locked in, right? And so the – so so or, or, or the characters are locked in, but then a, a tool uh, chest comes open. And now as the ship is rolling and twisting, these tools become, you know, projectiles, deadly projectiles. And the fact that they made that, right, they understood that and they made that a character. That was the obstacle that had to be overcome yeah. in the show. I thought it was just, you know. Season three with the prisoner that Ennis was uh, was protecting and then uh, a- Amos, sorry, gets Amos, impaled. Yeah, yeah, right. Amos gets impaled and then the, the prisoner helps save him and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I know yeah, I remember yeah. that exact uh scene it's it, it, it was amazing it's ironic. right right yeah probably my favorite one for that was season 3 when they're in the ring space and then they trigger its defense systems again and every ship gets stopped like a brick wall and my first thought was just like "Ooh, people are dead (laughs) in those ships and it was true it was like a third were instantly dead the next third bled out because in space they couldn't stop the internal bleeding and i was like this is this is what would have happened yeah 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 there's a there's an amazing mm-hmm. scene in season one very early where um joseph uh, you know miller you know yeah. i love miller i just love miller because the whole noir thing in there is just a, a delight in itself but miller is pouring himself <laughs> a drink right and he's on a rotating space day he's on a rotating hollowed out asteroid and so you see the the you know the whiskey come out of his bottle and it does the coriolis effect right yeah. Yeah. And so it's just like, it's this little subtle thing. They're not even going to say, hey, look, everybody, it's the Coriolis effect. They just did it, you know? And, <laughs> and that was such a beautiful thing. It's like, hey, this is the world's a little bit different here. Um, and you you wouldn't know this about, about this show, but this show came together for pretty much the reasons that you're talking about here. John and I wrote a hard science fiction novel yeah. called Beyond Kuiper. And Ben was our science pundit on our Comic-Con San Diego panel. And cool. we called it putting the science in science fiction. We had so much right. fun doing it. We created yeah. a podcast from it. Oh, that's great. That's great. Because you know what? I'm I'm not yeah. one of these people who's like, oh, every science fiction has to have accurate science. It depends on what you want, right? You know, and there's but if no, you're gonna no, do no. it, then do it right, you know, and then do it imaginatively. And the expanse, I think, is one of the great examples mm-hmm. uh, of that. You know, so I just finished a paper with a group of colleagues asking whether or not you could hollow out an asteroid and spin it up. Because when I did, I interviewed S, uh, um, one of, I forgot, you know, there's the essay, uh, James S.A. Corey is really two people, right? Uh, the, uh, the authors of the books. And now I'm forgetting who, uh, which one of them I talked to. But I asked him, like, did you guys do a calculation to figure out whether that's really possible? Could you hollow out series and spin it up? 
Uh, and he said no. And so then, you know, some colleagues and I just did it. And it turns out you can't. It's it's to, to rotate it up to one third G, which is really what you need to for people to live. The rock doesn't have the tensile strength. It would just break apart. Ah. So uh, so instead, we oh, proposed wow. that you could like encase the and also most asteroids, most of the smaller ones. Um, are actually rubble piles. So they're not even really rock. They're just sort of gently held together by their gravity. Right, so right, what you right. could do is you could encase one of those in some kind of micro fiber uh, bag, basically, that, that, and then spin it up and then it would expand mm-hmm. and then eventually the bag would catch it. So you could, you know, nanofibers or something. And then you could actually end up, that thing could sure, end sure. up being, now you'd have this giant spinning bag with regolith, with rock, you know, up against uh, it. So it moves, and, it uh, distributes the mass to the edges yep. so it's almost like yep. a Distributes. sort of like a ring world but inside of an inflated sphere a teeny tiny right yeah. it would be a ring world that would be maybe a few kilometers across because um that's what you know that's kind of the size you end up with which gives you a lot of inner surface area for yes. you know for having a city no very much so. so well that was something else too in the expanse but there's a lot of places where i have not seen this accurate is you know, back to the Coriolis effect, there's a minimal size, there's a minimal diameter that you need to spin one so you can have the revolutions per minute be low enough to not cause long-term health effects. Two, yeah, so the yeah. Coriolis effect is, I want to say homogenous enough, so it's not changing so much from right. the height of your head right. to the height As of your As a function feet. of radius. Yeah. Right, right. Otherwise, right. objects will drop right, and they'll, right. like, you know, be flying off on yeah. an arc in 2001 when you see him running you know in the uh you know he's got they're in that small rotating uh, uh platform or whatever on the discover on that their, mm-hmm. their ship mm-hmm. and then apparently that was so small with the rotation to get 1g gravity that every time he you know took a step upward in his you know as he was jogging he would have been thrown sideways so like that was just completely un unworkable so you need a pretty right you need a pretty large object or a large rotating drum you know like on this on the scale of you know tens of meters uh hundreds of meters in order for not to have the coriolis mm-hmm. effect just mess you up so with all that being said what do you think the timetable is to have a civilization like in the expanse i think 200 years is that again that's why i, love, I think 200 years is extremely reasonable for ah. for you know for that kind of thing. And that's again why I love the expanse is that hmm. it's it's it gives you a time scale. Like 200 years think about it, 200 years ago, you know, nobody had traveled faster than 60 miles an hour unless they were falling to their death. You know, mm-hmm. right? Cuz trains, I think trains are like 1820, 1830, mm-hmm. 1840. Uh, so, you know, just 200 yeah, yeah. years ago, you know, you look at the technology mm-hmm. and where we are from there to where we are now is insane. Um, and so 200 years from now, and the great thing, of course, about mm-hmm. the expanse is it's not positing miracle physics, right? So, you know, the Star Trek, the warp drive, which again, I got nothing against right. the warp drive, but the warp drive would mean would mean that there's some <laughs> entirely other kind of physics that, uh, or at least other kinds of matter, right? Because the Akubre drive, mm-hmm. any kind of warp drive would require um, what they call exotic matter, which is another word for something that we have no idea what it is, you know, that doesn't exist. It's exotic because it doesn't exist. Um <laughs> So, uh, but so, you know, they, they're just positing, you know, an extension of our, our, our ability to control uh, the known physics on higher levels. 
And so, yeah, I don't think there's really anything that they're doing that is not much more of an extension of the capacities that we should expect in the next 20, 30, 40 years. So so having millions mm-hmm. of people mm-hmm. on Mars, you know, uh, tens of millions in 200 years. Yeah, for sure. That could be if we you know, if we make it through climate change, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I just want to expand on that. Actually, I this was something from in the books. I believe that it takes place about 300 years. And then in The Expanse, they stated it's about 200. And I actually feel that... I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's a difference there. I don't don't know. I always somehow have 200 years in my head, and I'm not sure if I got it from the show or from the books. But either way, I think it would be another hundred and not because of the technology. You think like 500 or 400 years? 300, more than than 200, because of just the sheer amount of infrastructure that they have built up, like creating uh, Tycho Station, creating all of the orbital mirrors and everything that were on Ganymede, you know, just build, Mm -hmm. you know, first you'd have to get people there, then have enough, then build enough infrastructure to be self-sustainable. Right. And then you have these massive projects in space. I mean, just, I think the tech will be there long before the human, collective human effort and just yeah. the difficulty, you know, trying to assemble yeah. Yeah. anything yeah. in space. We don't, we don't have a lot. But of it would have to be robotics, right? It would have right. to and be that's... some sort of automation. Yeah. Right. right. And, and I mean, I, I have a bunch of friends at SpaceX and with the, uh, the Starship right there looking to launch a hundred a year once that's fully operational, right? Oh that, 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 right. That's their, that, that's their mission. I believe it's a uh, hundred a year by the year 2025, all each of them with like X amount of payload to create the habitat for right. Mars. Right. You know, if, right. if let's say they stay on that, that scale and by 2050, there's a real civilization on Mars and then exponential growth of technology. I don't know, 200 years doesn't, Seen that out of the realm of possibility, if you get that, you know, I think the the, the issue is that linchpin of start, right? You got to get them on Mars and you got to get that habitat going. Then it kind of grows exponentially from there. I think a large, a big part of it too is economies. Can you have an economy in space, right? So, so unless there's money to be made, we're not going on that scale. Right. So Elon Musk, it's great that Elon Musk is doing what he's doing. Yay. You know, but it won't, you know, it's not really going to stick unless there really is money to be made. And now, of course, in low Earth orbit, there's huge amounts of money to be made. Sure. You know, I think the, uh, you know, I've been doing some writing on this and reading the uh, amount of investment in um, the new space movement, the commercial space movement, right, is like tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. I think I think it's on the scale of hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, yeah. So, you know, so yeah, so there's a lot yeah, of money to be made is. in low Earth orbit, but in, in cislunar, you know, space between us and the moon, is there money to be made? You know, is there money to be made beyond the moon? You know, so we all point to asteroid mining. I think that's awesome. And so we'll just have to see. I mean, we'll just have to see whether that really turns out to be real. I'm hopeful. I'm all for it. You know, what do you think of like what, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson warns about with uh, mining asteroids and having so many resources that then you like crash the economy because you're so plentiful? That's when we get into Star Trek territory where there's no, the economy completely changes and there's no, you know, that might progress too. Yeah, so it's hard. To, I mean, you know, though some of the reports I've read are people <laughs> sort of think about the idea that, you know, in the beginning, you know, it's going to be this cooperative between uh, uh, governments and and commercial space where governments are going to establish forward bases and commerce is going to fund those. 
Um, but eventually, you know, the idea is you bootstrap that up enough. Eventually, there's enough commercial in space that you get other commercial funding the other commercial, right? It starts to build on itself. And then, you know, the the dream. So like in that sure, right, uh, right. Um, Artemis, the book uh, by who's I can't remember his name, the guy who did The Martian. His last book was about a moon base. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because like in, in sense that this moon base is economically failing until they discover that they can create completely lossless fiber optic cable on the moon, that that's a good environment for doing that. And then suddenly, boom, there's this economic explosion. So who knows once you get that's always been the promise of microgravity sure. manufacturing, that you'll be able to do things that you just can't do on Earth. So who knows? Sure. Yeah, who right. knows? We'll have to see. Um, so, I, you know. I, I completely agree with that sort of evolution. And and what Ben was saying is kind of what I've always, you know, internally thought, which is in our current paradigm of economics, we're not gonna ever find things the way that we used to, right? Even like, you know, be it by boat or by plane, et cetera, we're not uh, set up for being explorers economically anymore, right? right. So if mm. the paradigm of what, validates success changes because we have such an abundance of things you know that that's always i've been uh, toying with a new science fiction story to write where the the paradigm of social success isn't predicated on uh wealth but predicated on how many inventions you've mm, uh, mm, made mm, and and patents. how that would shift yeah. Right. How that would shift uh, creation and, you know, leaning into some of what Andrew Yang says about how he believes universal income wouldn't make people lazier. It would just make people more artistic. And, right. Right. And how, you know, that whole all that paradigm runs, because I'm I, I'm a, I'm a tan- tangenting, but I'm a, I'm a huge Joe Rogan fan and he has a fantastic reflection on America, which is that people live to the age of 100. So America is effectively three people old, right? It is such Mm, a young civilization that, you know, who's to say this is the right paradigm? And maybe there is a a more efficient growth because, you know, I am Star Trek through and through. And I'd love the, uh, the idea of um, cash and money to be secondary to exploration and wonder, right? That right. That, that is always, yeah. um, and I think we probably all share that as a uh, as a as a uh, mandate. One of my all time favorite science fiction writers is Kim Stanley Robinson. I just think his, you know, because his stuff is also very near future, and you know, the Red Mars yeah. Green Mars uh, series, Red Mars Blue Mars Green Mars series. Was I think, you know, he was the guy who started the reexamination in science fiction of the solar system, right? Because sort of, you know, by the mid 90s, it was all cyberpunk and, you know, or sort of, you know, galactic, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, empire stuff. And he was the one who said, like, no, 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 the solar system is really where the next thousand years gets played out because, you know, unless a miracle occurs, we're not getting out of the solar system. Sure. And, um, and so all of his stuff, I think, has been really thoughtful about economics. And because, you know, my thing, you know, so I do a lot of writing about climate change. I do a lot of writing about um, climate change and denial and, you know, what we have to do, you know, how to rethink uh, our relationship with the planet. And one of the things that strikes me, because if we're thinking about economics, is that, you know, any, you know, when I hear people, I, I just love people still arguing about capitalism versus socialism. It's like, dude, those things were created, you know, in 1840. In a smokestack world, it's yeah, like exactly. if your if your economic theory doesn't have the word yeah. planetary in it, 
you're like missing the fundamental point of the last 50 years of science. So I like the idea of yep. um, after I wrote the last book, you know, which was all about sort of like looking at climate change from an astrobiological perspective. I got hooked up with some, you know, some venture capitalists, you know, people wanted to talk along these lines. And I met people, you know, there's the idea of like regenerative, regenerative mm -hmm. capitalism or donut capitalism, people call it. We're like, you have to totally rethink about how it is your relationship to the means of production, because you can't just keep eating all the resources. You, you know, it can't just be growth of iron ore, you know, how much iron ore you mine, because there's, <laughs> you know, you just, there's just the entropic feedbacks or so. I think that's another interesting place. And that's why I like Kim Stanley Robinson is sometimes exploring like, look, how do you have, how do you have a vibrant economy in a, and, and innovation and all the things you want to have happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the flourishing of wealth and, and, and freedom mm -hmm. and justice and all those things when you're on a planet and a biosphere that you can't mess with, like you can't just like, you know, that's why I love, you know, like the Kardashev scale, right? So the Kardashev scale, right, is this, you know, it's, it's part of been part of SETI, but it's also part of every sign, not every, but you know, a lot of science fiction, uses, you know, Dyson spheres and the Kardashev scale. And the Kardashev type one just is is the perfect example of being wrong about things, right? So Kardashev had this idea that, you know, civilizations progress and you can mark them by how much energy they use, right? So type one was you're using all of the uh -huh. solar energy that falls on your planet. Type two is you're, you're getting all of the solar energy produced at all. But what he completely missed there, because they didn't know, it wasn't their fault, but that, you know, it's not just about energy, it's about entropy, right? So a type one, like the biosphere, you can't just bring the biosphere to heal, right? The bio, As we're learning, right? The biosphere, you know, as, as um, right, Lynn right. Margella said, you know, Gaia, you know, the planet is a tough bitch, you know, and you think you're going to mess with it and just have no effect. So this idea, it was, you know, I think of the Kardashev scale as planetary brutalism, right? Yeah, I can do, as long as I have enough energy, I can do whatever I want. You're like, no, you can't. And so that's a whole very interesting way of thinking about science fiction about, you know, because I think a lot of, I do a lot of work now in techno signatures and, you know, what, what used to be called SETI. Uh, and, you know, you got to really think about how civilizations and planets come to some kind of mutual agreement, you know, or else the, you know, the, it's the civilizations that go, not the sure. planet, right? Planets are much more robust than civilizations. I fully believe that pandemics are uh, the planet trying to self-correct, self, self yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so so to your point there, yeah. uh, expenditure of too much energy and too much movement you know, the, the planet is is trying to tell us something that we're uh, very gravely not not interpreting in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I would even put it slightly differently. So mm -hmm. there's a piece I've been mm -hmm. meaning to write for a while, which is the return of the old gods, which is that the planet doesn't care. The planet's not trying to tell us anything. The planet is going to mow us down, you know, as there's that great George Carlin thing. And the planet's going to shake us off like a dog with, you know, with fleas. So, you know, it's it's up to us to sort of <laughs> recognize like, oh, the planet, you know, the old gods are waking up because, you know, in the old days, people, you know, they gave they gave yeah. homage to the earth. They laid out, you know, they did sacrifice, they sacrificed chickens or whatever to the earth because they knew those powers were way beyond, mm -hmm. uh, you know, their own capacities. And we got this weird idea that like, oh, it's OK, we can do anything <laughs> we want. It's fine because we got used to that. For a little while and now sure. you know as we push ourselves out of the holocene and into the anthropocene it's like oh you know planets planets literally uh marshal cosmic scale forces they are in that sense gods you know um and so like yeah we have no idea what we're messing with we'll just get rolled over do you think that 
humans would have perhaps turned more inward and been more earth centric over the past half century if we did not have Mars or, you know, what we in very loose theory consider an alternate option? Um, no, I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't think Mars, no. I don't think Mars <laughs> is really, I, I think in the, I don't think it is either. I, I want to stipulate that. I'm just saying like from a, yeah. from, a from a, what society generally thinks <laughs> of it. Yeah, no, I, I think Mars, you know, because it's been such a mixed bag. That was the interesting thing when I wrote the book is I it was tracking the history of, because I thought, you know, because to me, actually, the um, the understanding of the planet that we need to have, the astrobiological understanding, only happened because we had these other planets. Like, right, you know, one of my favorite mm -hmm. things is when I get into fights with people and I don't anymore about climate models. <laughs> oh, those climate models are stupid. <laughs> it's like, dude, I can predict the weather on Mars. I have climate models for Mars that work really well. How can I yeah. not, you know, Venus, Titan, Jupiter, every planet with an atmosphere, I've got, you know, detailed climate models that do an extraordinary job. So I think in some sense, having those other planets was really instrumental to allowing us to have the kind of perspective that we are beginning to develop. I mean, in some sense, we wouldn't even know about climate change. Yeah, Adam, I don't mean to interrupt, but, um, you know, do a lot of work with JPL. And I mean, one of the things, especially in the last, 12 years that was keeping them going was by recalibrating all of their um, extraterrestrial work yeah. to look back yeah. on earth. I mean, yeah. it's a huge, it's a huge um, yeah. budget line in NASA is the earth centric um, stuff. And it's just, it's a good excuse to keep sending robots out right. into right. the into yeah. space. Adam or Ben or, or John, are you guys familiar with uh, Michael Mina, the immunologist from Harvard? So he was on, uh, and I only thought of this because I, I was listening to his podcast the other day. He was on the Lex Friedman show, if you guys know that, that podcast. And he uh, was talking about how, as a society, we need to look past weather maps and use that same thought process for um, disease maps and every other things. And, and he's working on this mm. a theory where he's like, you know, you don't walk around every day with an umbrella hoping that it doesn't rain, but you still have the umbrella out, just like you shouldn't right. walk around every day with a mask hoping that you don't that, that you need it for protection, that there should be, you know, weather maps for diseases and for other things so that, you know, if you're moving into sure. a pocket where it's unsafe, you bring your mask, just like if you're moving into an area that has weather, you bring your umbrella. And mm -hmm. I, I just you had said the weather map thing and it triggered that. Uh, that thought from that podcast, I thought it was really fascinating. Well, it's interesting. Like, you know, uh, when I was on Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. you know, I, I made the point then about like, you know, this was night 2018. I was like, you know, because pandemics came up and I was like, we're definitely hitting, you know, we're definitely going to get a pandemic, you know, and this is right. And COVID, COVID is our starter <laughs> pandemic, right? I mean, because the, the thing about COVID is that it's right. deadly enough to like threaten to, you know, upend the health system, you know, but it's not, you know, it's not contagion. The movie, speaking mm -hmm. of science fiction, it's not the movie contagion, yeah. right? We don't have people like outbreak, dying right. on the street or outbreak. Yeah, right. So, you know, so, and we're going to get more because, you know, the right, it, what is it? The last four or five, um, uh, pathogens that could have become pandemics, including SARS, were all zootropic. They all came from animals. They all came from bats or other animals, you know, not farm animals, animals that we got exposed to because we were pushing into habitat. And so, yeah, there's going to be more pandemics. This is like, this mm -hmm. one shouldn't have come as a surprise, you know? Well, one I, thing I, that I, I worried about is, hmm. you know, as you said, this pandemic was mild enough that it didn't interrupt infrastructure. 
is right. sorry is is is, is still loud enough that it didn't <laughs> or at least you know certainly from this from the space side of it it didn't interrupt the infrastructure yeah. for right space programs space technology mm. but you know those rely on extensive supply lines fuel sources right. you know rare earth metals large collaborations of people fast sure. internet you know i yeah. one of the things when this was starting back in march and we didn't really know how bad it was I was wondering, you know, is this going to get so bad that we lose? It fractures. It right, fractures. Right. And how long is it going to take us to be cohesive and work together enough to get space stuff back again? But to your right, point, this was right. a mild one. We don't know. You know, uh, I have this feeling that we need to focus on the planet to try to, you know, be better and not be screwing ourselves and everything else. But I, I feel like we're right at the cusp there. If we almost have enough technology and we don't we don't have any off planet infrastructure yet but if we did then even if we did have a pandemic like maybe it's enough to survive that and keep moving forward even if something really bad happened but otherwise if not it's like i think we you know we reset 50 or 100 years yeah in yeah. advancement yeah. I was just going to say, John, when, when the pandemic started and with you at Lockheed and having satellites that you're designing, did you see it? You know, was, was there a, a, um, a, a blip in the ability to produce because you were working from home for three, four months? Or even with working from home, the technology that we have allowed you to kind of seamlessly keep things moving? Because like I know, for instance, like SpaceX and my buddies there, they 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 were exempt because they're government contractors, so they stayed at the office. I'm sure most of right. your engineers stayed at the office too. But but to Adam's point, if this was more severe and like that like wasn't an option, right? If this was Ebola with COVID's you know transmission, then you can't do that. Like would that fundamentally yeah, yeah. just destroy everything? Well, I mean, if there was an Ebola level pandemic happening. I'd say probably destroy everything because it's destroying so much other infrastructure in supply right. lines that we're not in control of. But speaking just to the scope of Lockheed, yes, I mean, you know, also a giant government contractor and defense contractor. So anyone who was defense contract working in a top secret clearance, that is an on site. There is no taking your computer home and working on your Wi Fi. Right. So yeah. yeah, interesting. In that way, it was more the company had to rapidly adapt in places that it had previously said that it couldn't, I want to say. You know, they, Lockheed in general was not a proponent of work from home. And there was, you know, we sometimes we get notices or there was worry about the limitations of how much the network could handle off-campus traffic. And then in 48 hours, they doubled their networking capability. Yeah. Right, They're like, okay, right. so ninety yeah. percent of our or eighty percent of our people are moving off campus. We have to make this better. And I didn't notice any kind of lag in capability. Interesting. And yeah. I can't speak. I mean, I can see commercial satellites that didn't have specific <laughs> launch windows or that had repeating launch windows could probably have been delayed if necessary because of resources. But anything military. You know, is, is back gonna going. is going to keep going as well as anything interplanetary yeah. that has yeah. a because you the launch window exactly. Yeah, so right. I, you know, I've been working on Lucy, and well, I mean, before that, when Mars twenty twenty was happening in the spring, it was like you know, are the NASA you know 
government facilities are shutting down are the NASA facilities that are doing, um, you know, closeout operations and launch operations either at um, Johnson or at Kennedy. Are they going to be closed? And Miley looked at me and he said, the planets are still moving. So, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so in that respect. Even if we're not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, hey, let me, let me actually, I want to ask you guys a question because this is something I'm really interested in. So let's change time frames here. Okay. So we've been talking about near future, like 200 years. So, um, so, you know, I do a lot of work on, on what is called techno signatures, right? So techno signatures are basically the search for, um, uh, you know, indications of a technological civilization across interstellar distances. It's the analog of biosignatures, mm -hmm. which, you know, NASA has invested in a lot. And so I'm the principal investigator on the first NASA grant to do techno signatures in like 30 years, you know, if not ever in some sense, yeah. because the way it's so NASA has just opened, has just, you know, kind of said like, yes, we will now once again, start funding, um, you know, uh, research into life, that has to establish some degree of technological imprint. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not entirely true. They still funded some things. But, you know, NASA really got nailed in the 80s and 90s by Congress a couple times being like, this is, you can't fund SETI, that's a waste of time. So whatever, okay. So one of the major props, so there's this now this real effort or starting in techno signatures in SETI that didn't exist before because, you know, SETI was always starved for cash. And other than like this small group of really brave and dedicated researchers, there was no funding. So you couldn't have graduate students and postdocs and everything you need to have a vibrant. And hopefully it's beginning to change now. But what it really brings up is this issue. And this is so why science fiction is so important is, um, you know, you can do the math. And show, this is something that David Kipping did. There's a paper I'm on that David Kipping did all the work, all the, the genius math, um, where he showed that, you know, uh, if you look at the probabilities, you're going to, uh, if you're going to detect another civilization, odds are it's going to be older than you, probably a lot older than you, right? So this then raises the question of how do we systematically think about civilizations that are not 100 years older or 200 years older or 300 years older, but that are... 100,000 years older, you know, a million years older, a billion years older. How do you think about as I, you know, so I phrase the problem, the million year civilization. What does a civilization look like if it's had a, a million years of evolution beyond, say, our point now, you know, where we're just kind of getting off the ground? I would say you answered that in Alien Worlds. Mm -hmm. I watched uh, I watched that episode, uh, episode four. Yeah. I saw, uh, unless if there's another Adam Frank, I'm assuming that was you. Nope, no, no, that I, was me. I'm wearing I, the same I, shirt, damn it. I, <laughs> I always, you know, I, like I, 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 these are my two shirts that I wear all the time. Yeah. I, I think a, a physical body nice. is probably evaporated and, and it's a, it's a consciousness kind of like in that episode i think it's probably very very similar to maybe a million year old um mm -hmm. civilization you know when you go earlier than that 50 or a hundred thousand or two hundred and fifty thousand, I, I think you know a, a, a more scientific at least i hope and i'm no scientist right they're the scientists I'm, I'm, I'm the science fiction guy, but um, I, I, I hope it's a more scientific, relevant Star Wars, right? Like it's a galactic colony of of planets that, you know, figured out how mm. to, you know, travel uh, inter inter galaxy, right? Traveling between galaxies is effectively impossible. But, you know, a galaxy that um, 
has star systems that are within a few thousand light years of each other, and they figured out a way to move that space quickly, and uh, they cohabitat. I, I, and I want I want to hear John and Ben's uh, thoughts, but I I I tend to be more optimistic that if you can do, it, it, I, I like to think of the. Um, the old homage with with uh, with Muay Thai fighters, right? If you have the ability to really hurt someone, you're probably a really nice guy because <laughs> you don't you understand the power that you hold, and you only use it in extreme circumstances. <laughs> so I, I I like to think that if somebody has that technology to travel between star systems, which effectively they would have the technology to destroy the star systems, that they would be very respectful of the power they hold. Well, while you guys, I mean, as you guys go around this, I'd like to know your examples of science fiction that deals with really, really old civilizations. Because I sort of struggle. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll oh. first want to hear from you guys, mm -hmm. and then I'll talk about the ones that I think of. The first one that comes out to me, up, up to, in my head, I always think of Dune and like yeah. the 10,191. And I remember watching the movie as a kid and thinking like, holy, oh, wait, did she just say, does that mean that's this same time period? That's amazing to think about 8,000 years in the future or something like that. And now this conversation isn't even that. I do want to add, though, to the original question, which is like, what is this? Some of it is, yeah, is there a million-year-old civilization? But it also... Some of it to me is like, well, what's our definition of civilization and what do we think that it's, what's the definition going to look like someplace else? Like, does every civilization, is civilization a thing that is discrete and that is self-generating or regenerating or something like that and kind of goes through these phases? So there never would be right, able right. to be a million year civilization. Um, you know, I mean, we see that in sort of microcosm now, right? The past 300 years of history we've gone through a few empires and a few different people on top and, and it's probably going to change pretty soon too. So, you know, is it even possible to have a million year civilization? Um, you know, so I don't know. I just, some of this stuff when it comes to science fiction, I feel like is a way not to deal with kind of what's happening now. Um, it's almost like too, it, it's too far out there. That's why I like, I, I, not that I only like this, but I tend mm -hmm. to like more near future kind of stuff because you really are trying to work out what we originally started this conversation with is that the role of science fiction is being able to kind of, you know, reflect on us as people and where we are. Um, if we kind of think too far in the future, sometimes to me, it just seems like where, what are the rules for that? Especially if it's in some other part of the universe or something, that's not to say that I don't think that this is an important thing. Um, I know. So I run a space center outside of LA and our, uh, we have a program for girls in STEM. It's girls awesome. through, uh, third grade through high school. And they've been part of a JPL program doing the citizen science um, yeah. sort of data crunching of SETI. Um, and it's totally like the girls are super into it. And they're like, yes, we're doing calculations about, you know, maybe alien, alien life. And they're just looking at like the most boring rows of numbers. But it's just in those rows. Find, yeah. Could be there. That that's the it's like, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to like to throw the question off, but part of me always thinks about like, geez, in a million year civilization, like, is that uh, kind of on our, is that within our But this is the thing rules? is to think so about, I, this is it, what I'm interested it's, in. Because so, if you're going to do techno signatures, yeah. you have to think about this because odds are you're not going to find a civilization that's 200 years True. older than you are. You know, 200 years, that's too, you know, you're going to find the right. long lived sure. civilization, so. 
So, John, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, sorry. I was chomping chomping at the bit on this one. Okay, so first of all, first example, the first example, the Ancients in Stargate. As an, as an example of a multi-million year old civilization. Now, of course, in that one, you know, they had their heyday mm. and are long since gone. And right, right. It's often the way it is. Yeah. And, but I think that's the one I, yeah, right. The Expanse is another situation. Time. Same thing in Halo, same thing in Mass Effect. Yeah. There is these much right, older right. civilizations that had technology that was so advanced that it endured through all this time. And we find the pieces, uh, we find the subway system, yeah. right? That's always we find, and that's what allows us to travel between the stars. Exactly. So, yeah. You know, we're piggybacking off of those who came before us. Yeah, right, um, right. I do think that if our technological advancement continues at the rate of which it does, I do find that it would be hard pressed that a million years from now humans would still be biological creatures, because I think yeah. that we would have just figured out a way to fuse our consciousness into. Mm some sort of digital form now the question though is then like okay does that mean then that from that moment Mm -hmm. everyone is immortal but there are no new humans and you know we think about these far in the future civilizations i've got to imagine that if you've existed for that long then you must have found a way to overcome war and a lot of conflict or you spread so far out that you survived all those things um and so then, though, you know, if you exist for a million years and you have this God level technology and presumably you can solve any issue that you have. And if you don't even have a body and the constraints of that, then I think the limit is almost your boredom or your adventure. Mm-hmm. You know, is it mm-hmm. is it now that you're a civilization that just, you know, finds pleasure from art or from creating worlds and species or are you now just kind of over everything Making simulations of yeah you create simulations or you ascend <laughs> and so then that's the question too is do we actually have a weird sort of gap of where you of a civilization that's pre-industrialized and then eventually gets to a point where it can transmit radio signals and you could it would have a techno signature but then it gets to a point where it transcends beyond this technology that it's using and is in a form that no longer leaves a techno signature. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's something that we think about a lot, especially when it comes to sustainability. So, you know, the now, interesting thing about this, God. No, I was going to ask you the question, Adam. Do, when, when you ask this question, what's a million year civilization look like? Do you mean it from the point of view of something that we could meet or just generally what that could look like, right? Because universe 13 point some odd billion years old our planet is six some odd billion years old so there's you know seven billion years of potential life on planets that happened before we were even born right and the idea that those civilizations lasted more than even a million years probably unlikely but why why wait why 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 would it be more than why not why not a billion year civilization so i would and you know what Maybe there is, but technologically, I I, I kind of side with John that they might be bored. We uh we do another podcast with heavy metal called uh, Wonderwork, and Wonderwork is a, uh, a narrative science fiction fantasy story, voice acted the whole g- gambit. Yeah. And there's an episode that we just had uh called The Wizard's Curtain, and 
it's effectively this, which is uh, the civilization uh, got so powerful and so old that this guy could relive any time in history. They were he was able to travel all spectrums of time and use it as a dimension rather than a linear line. And he got bored. And 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 he was like, you know, I've I, I've watched Hitler do this. I've watched this do that. I've watched worlds fall and grow and kind of tired. Right. So I, I, I do think that at a certain point, you know, you might get um, cosmic and ennui. Yeah. Um, you might you might get um, I don't know. Bo- bored or you know listen i hear you but this is this i mean you know for th- that is a very human centric idea though the idea of boredom right maybe that's the problem that right just don't have that effect or that perceive life differently right. so right yeah. long you know in- so this yeah. is the right. this is the dilemma so for techno signatures right this is the dilemma that we face is that if you you know if you if if the mission is to look for the imprints of technological civilizations and Odds are you're going to find the older ones. You got to find a way to systematically think about the older ones and without, right, without trying not to impose the biases mm. of, you know, you know, so that's, I've been thinking about this a lot. And so, and I actually think science fiction is incredibly important here because the problem for scientists is that we've been trained in thinking a certain way. We don't know anything about anthropology. You know, we don't know any, actually anything about the disciplines that would actually help us here to the degree that they can help us. Right. What is a society? <laughs> What does it mean to create technologies? What do you know? Um, but but the great thing about science fiction is, is that, you know, storytellers, because really, if we're talking a million years, we're talking about myth. We're talking about like we're, we're now in the domains of myth. Mm-hmm. And we need people who are really good at myth making, yeah. at understanding the, the function of myth. So one of, you know, a, a friend of mine, a guy, he's a, he's a Zen teacher, gave me Cordwainer Smith. Have you guys ever read Cordwainer Smith? From the 60s. He's a science fiction writer. The the Rediscovery of Man. And it takes place like 30 to 50,000 years in the future. Yeah. And it's like Dune on acid, you know, Um, because it is it's (laughs) so far in the future that people really have become different. People have, you know, and it's just a beautiful and it is very much. In the realm of almost a dream, and I'm I'm generally a hard high science fiction kind of guy. That's like my my main thing. But I, w- I w- was like, okay, this is somebody who you know. I felt like this was someone who had wrapped their minds around what what profound transformations in not just technology but also in the structure of consciousness would happen after that long a time. And it reminds me. So what you guys were talking about before, especially John, what you were when you got into boredom, it makes me totally brings me back to Greek mythology. I mean, that's what the, the pantheon of the gods and Olympus, all they do is just hang around and with humans, screw around and <laughs> play around with, with humans. And stuff. But it's not, you know, these, these are entities that have been around forever and that's what they do. Um, that was the, the high point for Greek civilization was, you know, their gods were super bored. Yeah. That's what they got to. Um, it also makes me think though, of the glass mm. bead game by Herman Hess. Um, which, you know, basically is, I, this is going back several years, but, um, you know, it's like civilization had gotten to a point where the elites play this game. And that's kind of like, that's like, if you have reached the top of their society and their civilization, you get really good at playing yeah. this game called the glass bead game. And that it's, it's interesting to, to think about how a lot, of, there is a lot of convergence here in this conversation with that sort of really far future, um, 
science fiction where we come to this conclusion, well, I guess we're just going to sit around and like be couch potatoes or do nothing or, you know, just kind of, you know, we've done everything. So what is there after that? And it kind of makes me think about, uh, this is not science fiction, <laughs> although maybe it is, I don't know. The, the last episode of the penultimate season of Mad Men takes place on July 20th of 1969. And you, it's a great sequence at the end. And it's just, it's views of everybody watching TV of, you know, Apollo 11 landing on the moon and just the, the awe in everybody's face. And then the next line and the dominant question for the entire yeah. last season yeah. was what do we do now? Like, as I think it's such a great metaphor for yeah. the U S yeah. in the past 50 years too. Like, we hit this huge point and then every, 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 everything after that has been like us kind of searching for an identity yeah, and searching yeah. for something to do. So I don't know, maybe that's not very optimistic, <laughs> well, but, again, but I, interesting this, that a lot of this stuff in these, I think it is so really important. I mean, this is the thing that I try and think myself is to not, you know, we have, we human beings have a very particular evolutionary heritage, right? We came from, you know, we're not mm. social. We're close to being eusocial, right? We're not a hive mind, but we're close, you know, we're very hierarchical. So we came from these, mm -hmm. you know, this, this very hierarchical tribes yeah. of, you know, of monkeys or of apes. Um, and, and that left us mm -hmm. with a kind of certain kind of baggage, you know, which was both useful, but also, so, I mean, mm -hmm. who knows what, you know, what other consciousnesses would right. be like. Um, you know, you can imagine, you know, one of the things I, I liked right. about, uh, I, I didn't like much about it. Um, about, uh, oh my God, what's the 3D James Cameron movie? Avatar? Help me, help me out Avatar? here. Avatar? Avatar, right? A right. Yeah, yeah. But Pandora, the Pandora, cool vision yeah. of Pandora <laughs> as this planet that was actually conscious, you know? Or you look at, um, yeah, Lev, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Solaris, right? The idea that, that Stanislav yeah, Lev, yeah, yeah. Stan I'll Stanislav tell you, man, the Lev. Russian, yeah. I got to go back and read a lot more of the, that, that era because those guys were mythic. They yeah. were thinking, on scales that actually, yeah, we, you know, I think that Western science, you know, Western science fiction has been very sort yeah, of like, absolutely. oh, levers and dials and buttons to push. And the Russians at that era were thinking on, you know, um, uh, yeah. so, so yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's very possible that like our definitions of intelligence, our definitions of civilization, our definitions of technology, yeah. we got to be fluid about yeah. these things so that we're not sort of, then maybe that's one way you could approach this problem too, is thinking about, you know, civilizations are made from people and you, it gets chunked down into the individual, right? So it's not only just think about all the different civilizations, but what are the different right. kind of beings right. that would be right. possible out there? So take it from the perspective, look at a look at an organism that is extremely right. social right. and is a hive, literally bees. If there were conscious bees and they had a million right, right. I think that's a really good way of going about like? it. You know, um, be the board. You will be assimilated. Yeah, the board. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, from the, yeah. and to just jump in real quick, the board, you know, from their point of view are not evil, right? Like, like right. That, that's oh, what not I at always all. find. Yeah. That's what right. I find to be the most fascinating part and the biggest misconception of that race. And the most fascinating right. part about it is that, if you look at it, and sure. there's that episode, I'm um, blanking on the Borg's name that, you know, comes back, uh, that Picard becomes friends with, right? From his point of view, he's just trying to give technology to life forms uh, who are inferior yeah. to them, yeah. which is a 
fascinating perspective, mm-hmm. right? That's one of my favorite Star Trek episodes of all time. Is, is the mm-hmm. one that where they introduce the Borg, where Q kicks them, you know, to the other side of the galaxy, and they encounter the Borg, and it's just like, yeah. you know, terror. It was just like, you know, yeah, you thought, oh, you beat the Klingons, you're so awesome. And I, I thought that the whole that whole introduction <laughs> of the Borg, that episode, really added a whole another dimension to Star Trek that was really useful. Do, do, yeah. do you watch tar- Star yeah. Trek Discovery at all? I started. I watched the first season. Um, and then I was like, do I really, I, I got pissed off at having to pay, I, you know, I already have so many, I got Disney cause the Mandalorian, I got too Prime, much. I know I was just, yeah, you know, so I want to, so sooner or later I will. Did you watch but Picard? Like, no, see, it's the same problem. So I'm watching the Mandalorian. I'm watching thing, uh, his yeah. dark materials. You know, I mean, how many, how All many TV channels can I have? Mm. Yeah. I mean, do you, mm, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to give I don't want to give away the main part <laughs> you tell me if you don't want me to to say that no, it's cool I mean, it's, it's cool it's all right i'm not so, sure so you know in, in, in picard the interesting you know I, I have my own gripes with the way the show was made but the overarching concept is that you know what if the romulan get the borg technology what happens Right. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. as a baseline is a really interesting point of view. Right. Like Mm -hmm. the one thing we haven't talked about here, which I think needs to be thought about is if we're talking about a million year old civilization, I would hope it's inevitable that they would have found other civilizations, maybe more technologically advanced, maybe less. Right. You know, I, I live by, you know, Carl Sagan's it would be an awful waste of space from contact if there's just one or two. Um, but like what happens if, you know, a super technologically advanced civilization yeah. encounters another one and one steals the others and becomes a super technologically yeah. advanced civilization? Right. That gets dangerous. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, yeah. and and yeah. that's kind of what was um, those are good you know, stories to tell. With. Yeah, yeah, great stories telling that that that's what was you know challenged <laughs> in the Picard series. Yeah. But um, you know that that that's something that I think a million year old civilization would have had to either overcome or or falter at right because the one thing that Star Trek does wrong is they wouldn't make it out every time. Same as Stargate, right? It, it's for the drama. Yeah. But like sure, sure. At yeah. some oh, point, yeah. you know, the lead team or the Enterprise or whoever it is. Is gonna get killed by a super, yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah, aggressive, right, or right. or just something completely alien that they've encountered sure. that kills them, and you know, not out of any kind of aggression, it just like right, something just, happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, it, uh, to, one thing, just a shout out because this is this is I'm something I've been so my, my research group. So I've got a research group. We do lots of different things. We study how stars form. We study how stars die. Now we also do astrobiology, but you know, a lot of us are star. How do we join the group, by the way? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you have to apply to the University of Rochester graduate program. Oh, okay. Then, <laughs> or you know, if you have you know, because you know, we're, we we do uh, supercomputer modeling. That's what we you know we do uh, magneto gas dynamics. That's our our thing. Oh, cool. But but so we spend a lot of time talking about science fiction. Most of the people in my group are nerds. You know, I try and encourage that nerdiness, you know, because if you're going to be a physicist, damn it, you should be a nerd. Sure. Okay. You can't not know the entire, I have one, one, my, one of my, the student I have now, God bless his heart, Alex. Um, so, you know, I want to give him an award for this. He has watched, <laughs> maybe you guys have done this too, but he's watched every Star Trek ever made in the correct temporal order. 
right? So starting with Ooh. Enterprise. I know. Come on. That's dedication, oh, wow. man. That's, you know, that's good. Yeah. yeah that's the same thing in the Marvel <laughs> Cinematic Universe also. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That, so that's, that's I think that yes. shows, you know, a level yeah. of commitment that I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm down with. Um, shout out just to Star Trek. because So the conversation we were having was about why, and this is my personal opinion, why Star Wars sucks uh, in terms of universe building. Like I've never found the Star Wars universe very interesting because they keep changing it and it's not, you know, they got this, like, you know, there's a thousand years of the Republic and then everything that happens in the movies or the series is 30 years. Yeah. Mandalorian doesn't even know who Jedi are. What? That was very sense. strange to me, like the level of forgetfulness about their own yeah. history. Yeah. But that's because they don't, I mean, that's that's my problem with yeah. Star, Star Wars. They don't care. Like, it's just not, whereas Star Trek has mm-hmm. lovingly, and the Marvel yeah. Universe, of course, nobody does it like the Marvel But Star Trek, because Star Trek started it, right? right? This idea of we're going to build a universe. We're going to keep our law, our physics laws consistent. You got warp drive. It can only go up to warp 10 or maybe 100 mm-hmm. if Scotty's going to really go. Or you've got that. a mycelium but, drive. Yeah, right. Okay. But, you know, <laughs> and then, and there are these political players and these are what the political, what the politics looks like. And so, sure. you know, Star Trek, no matter what of its highs and lows, and there's some I like more than others, they have built a beautiful, over, you know, 50 years, consistent, coherent, fictional universe. Mm-hmm. So it's one of the two shout out to that. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. agree with that more. And I think that's mm-hmm. a very poetic way for us to wrap up this episode. And, and Adam, do you have any, uh, any other plugs you want to give? Where, where can people who listen to this find you? Uh, by, well, you know, I write books, so you can actually go to Adam Frank, uh, science.com, which is my website, which I wish I did better keeping up on, but it's got, you know, sort of where, you know, examples of my writing, my books, etc. Twitter is really the only social media that I do. Uh, Adam Frank four, the number, uh, number four. Cool. Um, and I'm four just about to start, right? Yeah. Right. Four dimensions. Yeah. It's, I don't know why that's, but it's good. That, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I was thinking when, uh, uh, and I'm about to start, you know, so we ran this blog on NPR, uh, for, for 11 years. Um, and now we're about to Marcelo Gleiser, who's my co-founder and uh, he's a physicist at Dartmouth. We're about to move it over to, um, bigthink.com. So I'll be, I'll be writing, you know, twice a month okay. there on, you know, whatever, whatever moves me, which is often science fiction or video games. Cause I love video games. Um, so yeah, there you go. Well, and, and uh, for anyone listening, if, if this hasn't, uh, convinced you to buy Adam's books and, and dive deeper into his mind, go watch episode four of alien worlds. Cause, uh, <laughs> that, that, that was, uh, I, I you, you not to spoil it for people, but I, I loved your perspective on future Thank civilizations. Uh, I thought it was really, really interesting. Um, well, uh, John, Ben, thanks again for this episode. And uh, this is Matt signing off for putting the science in science fiction. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having me on. This was super fun. Thank super you, Adam. Fun. Thanks, Adam. Really enjoyed it. Okay.